It's Arjun. With the video this week, wanted to bring together some of the key themes we've been talking about here for 2024. We are in a world that is normalized post-COVID, including for the traditional energy sector. Returns are better, balance sheets are fixed, yet the stocks are starting to stagnate a little bit. It was a year of consolidation. The sector weight fell a little bit. Yes, oil and gas prices fell sequentially, so that's part of it. Uh, but this idea of what is the outlook for the sector? What is their role in the world in meeting future energy growth? Is there a case to be made for demand? Is there a case to be made for sustainable profitability? And at the end of the day, how are individual sectors and especially companies leaning into what I think is a very good outlook? It's no longer, for the most part, about being defensive, about trying to fix yourself. The sector is fixed. What we need now and what I think will be uh, the path forward for the winners is going to be how do you differentiate yourself and how do you think about this mix of growth and returns by subsector, uh, by individual company. And I'll, I'll stay at the subsector level, but there can be quite a divergence within the subsectors. I want to start with the disclaimer that when I talk about growth, this is not, absolutely not, going back to the bad old days of drill baby drill and growth baby growth. Uh, growth can mean many different things. It can mean growth in dividends per share, growth in stock buybacks. Uh, you could be a company that's very mature where some version of liquidation makes sense, where it could be growth in total cash return to shareholders, but perhaps not in some smooth dividend stream that is lump sum kind of one-off payments. It can be a variety of things. And in some cases, it might be low cost of supply, volume growth, low cost of supply, the key words there, it could be M&A expansion. Um, but through all those different examples, growth to me means a positive equity story. It does not mean volume growth per se. And with everything, my focus is always, my North Star is, is it profitable? Are you generating good returns? So I've shown this before. The challenge for the sector is, is earnings weight, which is the blue line versus the energy sector's S&P market weight. And you can see on the far right here, a very big gap where the fundamentals of the sector are well in excess of investor enthusiasm to, to simplify. And the question is, how do you close this gap? Uh, and I'm going to presume, and you can make it have a different view, that it won't be through earnings collapsing. That is one of the ways. Why does this gap exist? Beyond some of the short-term cyclical concerns that people may have about recession and these kind of things, which would hurt the sector, I think the biggest issue here are twofold. There isn't confidence sufficiently in the long-term demand outlook for energy and specifically oil, most notably, but to some degree, natural gas as well. There's concern we're going to have, quote, peak demand at some point in the future, something I push back hard on, uh, and I'll get to that in a minute. I do think there's also still a lingering doubt about the sustainability of profitability, especially if people aren't sure. Um, how do you perpetuate returns? What is the longevity of your asset base and your and your inventory of either low cost of supply projects or different things you can do. And so I think it's a doubt on both demand at the sector level and on returns. And giving more confidence in that, I think, is the key to closing this gap. So I won't spend as much time on this since I talk about it at almost every post and video at this point. But the total addressable market for energy is massive. And I think you all know my view. There is simply the lucky 1 billion of us that are disproportionately rich and using a heck of a lot of energy. In this case, in oil terms, 13 barrels per capita. We are trying to figure out how do we meet the energy needs of the other 7 billion people on Earth, soon to be nine, that are using a fraction of the oil that we do. 
Your total addressable market, if everyone is similarly rich, that to me is capitalism. That is the optimistic take. That is economic and social justice. We are all similarly rich. 10 barrels per capita. We can debate which century that occurs. It could be 100 years from now. May not be in the next 20 years, unfortunately. You're talking in oil terms, a 250 million barrel a day oil market. That is not a projection. I do not think oil demand will ever get that high. The question is, what is the share of the different technologies to meet that total addressable market? And the idea that the market share development for oil will be minus 170%, <laughs> which is your 30 million barrel a day net zero by some round number year forecast is ridiculous. It is absolutely preposterous. Um, so I think all new energies are going to be needed. I think oil will be part of that mix. Gas will be part of that mix. And at this point, I do not think it's possible to articulate the decade, let alone year, where any of these things are going to peak. And we don't yet know what is going to scale up unsubsidized or at least minimally subsidized. And that's the challenge. There are 5 billion people, 5.1 billion people in Asia moving up these energy and economic S-curves. And when you move it up, this is not 17%, 6%, or 3% more energy. It's 17x, 6x, and 3x. And we're just getting going. China may be at its midpoint, but there's still a long way to go. India, just getting started. The rest of Southeast Asia, somewhere between India and China. And there's still Africa to come and parts of Latin America. The outlook for energy, I'm not sure there isn't a better structural growth area than energy. The growth rates are 1% or 2%, so well below AI or cloud infrastructure or whatever more exciting area you want to come up with. But the long-term structural growth drivers are substantial. I don't know when market participants or companies or whomever is going to get more confidence, but I'd say I have confidence in long-term oil, gas, and everything else, demand growth going forward. So let's spend some time on the profitability. And I really want to get into the subsectors. I know there's a ton of squiggly lines here. And I have to say, one of my best all-time associates. I'm going to go by the initials since this is somewhat public. WS is the initials. I believe he's a subscriber and a watcher. If you have ideas on how to improve my pictures, I would welcome your feedback. You are always my best formatter at Goldman Sachs. Um, but this is um, sector profitability since 1991 for return on capital regimes. The thick black line, that is the median for the traditional energy sector. In this analysis, I'm excluding midstream chemicals from that average, and I, we can talk about it for some other time. Uh, but you had the lackluster 90s, period one. You had the very good, I call it super spike era, the super cycle of 20 years ago, much better returns. You then had the really bad period post the super spike bust and the COVID deep trough. And then now we're in a significantly better period. This fourth return on capital regime is thus far shaping up to be the best ever uh, for the sector. And I get that there's some questions on durability and so forth, but you still have CapEx for the sector much closer to trough than to peak. You've got some uh, M&A going on that is further consolidating the sector. I think there's a lot to feel good about with really all the subsectors doing much better. This just isn't, isn't just the super majors or you know one specific unit of energy. It, it's really the entire sector. And I, I want to now go into some of these subsectors. And I'm going to keep showing this graph, but I'm going to try and articulate um, how I think about the outlook, how we think about the outlook at Veriden and, and at Superspiked about the different, uh, different subsectors. So let me start with the international oil companies and the Canadian big four. And by IOCs, 
That is what everyone knows as the super majors. It is a handful of these mega cap, non-integrated oils. Um, and this is primarily US and Europe, of course, we're talking about. And then I've separately shown the big four Canadian oils. They're in red, the IOCs are in green. So I've made the lines for the subsectors I'm talking about thicker. And I've used a transparency function to try and fade the other subsectors. Hopefully, this is a good way to show it. It makes sense to me. And I think a couple of things jump out. First, the profitability for the IOCs and the Canadian big fours are generally comparable and generally quite good. Um, that was especially true in the super spike era. They were more challenged here in the last seven years. And of course, they're now doing very well. I think the end game for these companies is to be a going concern. And what that means to me is it's not a liquidation strategy. It is a not a, we're going to return all of our cash back to investors and call it a day kind of strategy. It is that idea. If you go back to that earnings versus S&P weight, classically, the biggest oils have traded at 80 to 90% of the S&P weight. And we're not going to get into the Magnificent Seven and what that would mean today or not today on a very long-term basis, 80 to 90% relative PE, even though historically, oil demand has never grown more than one to one and a half percent. So the inherent growth rate uh, supports um, a, a near comparable S&P weighting. And the key to me is actually profitability and people believing that there are a sufficient inventory of long cycle um, opportunities to uh, perpetuate those returns into the future. And by long cycle, I don't necessarily mean simply uh, long lead time projects. It can be an inventory of Permian drilling locations, as an example, which are generally thought of as a short cycle. Can you perpetuate your company? It's going to be a mixture of mostly traditional energy stuff. It can be for some of these leaning into some new energy areas that are logical. That to me is the opportunity set. And that is what you're going for in these. Now, it's going to vary differently by the individual companies. I will defer or refer to the current crop of street analysts to give the company specific recommendations. But this is what I get excited about in terms of these groups. It is such a big opportunity to go from a 50% relative PE to 80 to 90%. Not going to happen in a day. You do have to care about the Magnificent Seven and other considerations like that. But if you generate good returns, compounding good returns, and returning some meaningful portion of that back to shareholders will be rewarded. It is a question of time. It is what I think is most interesting about these groups. Let's turn to the refiners. Um, you know, and I call them refiners because that's what we've always called them. They're probably better called downstream companies today because they have marketing, some of chemicals, some of midstream, some of new energies, renewable diesel. They're not just classic refiners, but that's what we call them. And, and I'm sorry, this is the big three US refiners, which are um, Marathon Petroleum, Philip 66, and Valero Energy. And I'm talking about them as a group. Again, we don't do individual stock calls here at uh, Super Spiked or at Veriton. But this is a, a, a sector that when I was at Goldman, and my career ended it there at 2014. So I've been, we're almost, we're a 10 year mark, actually. Uh, it was crazy, 10 years since I've been at Goldman. But I was a huge fan of the refining sector, um, in part because of Shale and Brent WTI and, and those kind of things that we cared about in those days. Uh, my friend uh, Doug Terrison used to call it the golden age of refining. Great, great call by Doug. Um, and we similarly had a very positive view at Goldman. Um, but it was the idea that these companies are going to generate good returns. And yes, they're going to be volatile, but the profitability wins out. And I think that call, I can't believe it's basically still the same call today. And you know, congratulations to these companies that have developed sector-leading profitability. 
over the last decade, which was a very challenging decade, as we know, especially for upstream-oriented names, but this thick gray line, which is the refiners, uh, has done very well. And what I find most intriguing is look at the troughs. In the deep COVID trough, they did better than oily EMPs, gassy EMPs, and what's this pink line? Oil services, the big two or three there. Um, in the super spike bust, they, I mean, they had a, what is that, an 8% return on capital? That's an outstanding trough. Even actually in the financial crisis, I don't really remember this, but they at least did, well, they did better than gas EMPs, but some of these troughs are actually surprisingly shallow. Um, they're doing best uh, versus every other subsector today. I'll still say that the inherent volatility probably does not allow them to get to 80 to 90% relative PE. Maybe that can change depending on business mix. Do you have more midstream? How does chemicals fit in? All these kind of things. How does renewable diesel impact this and so forth? Uh, but I, I do think they are striving actually for that going concern type valuation. And that's a funny thing to say in a sector where if there's one part of the oil demand outlook that I sort of concur with those that are more bearish is that I don't have some booming US gasoline demand view. I, I see how that's mature. I can actually see how that could even decline. Uh, going forward, if fuel economy, God forbid, ever kicks in and with some electrification share um, clicking in. But between export op opportunities, between global oil demand growing, uh, between having um, well-run, low-cost supply assets, between all the different business mix that they now have, um, they seem to be, and, and especially with all the closures and conversions to renewable diesel that you're seeing in the US and Europe, I, th I the refiners are a sector to for sure spend some time on and to think about not as refining margin plates, which will always matter on a short-term trading basis, but to think about them as part of that going concern mix, similar to the majors and IOCs. And it's, a again, I think a real opportunity for this sector, which I find very intriguing. Let's talk about midstream. And so, um, I, you know, I never, for points of disclaimer, never directly covered the midstream companies. We, we had a, some terrific analysts at Goldman used to do it uh, as part of my broader team. And then I have in various times looked at MLPs and so forth. Um, a couple of things jump out. Um, it's the thick purple line now, it's the midstream, obviously significantly more stable than the other sectors. Generally lower return on capital employed, but obviously at least in the context of these, this sort of Y axis, which has to reflect the extreme volatility of other sectors, this almost looks like a flat line, point number one. Point number two is because it's more stable, I'm not so sure that the return on capital is actually the right metric. It probably is a return on equity type number. Uh, so long as you have confidence in the exact nature of their strategy, are they taking on more volatile or staying with less volatile business streams? Uh, a lot of it's fee income, but some of it's not. And you have to recognize that. The second thing that surprised me as I start to dig into the midstream is there's a broader range of return on capital. Again, putting aside that that may not be the right metric, in the metric I'm looking at, there's a broader range amongst these companies, which kind of surprised me. But I couldn't quite tell a quality differential, meaning there's some good companies or what I think the market would perceive as a good company with a good return on capital. But just some other companies that are, I think are also viewed in that good company bucket where the return on capital wasn't as good. So I need to dig into that more. But there's actually a broader range of ROCE than is reflected in this line. It is stable. And if you are one of these other subsectors of companies, like, well, hey, here's a way to add some stable energy mix to it. I think the challenge here is that the balance sheets probably should be more levered. So how do you think about that from a corporate structure standpoint? Does it make sense to incorporate more midstream? I'm not so sure the answer is yes for the other sectors. I'm not sure it's no. I think it's worthy of consideration. 
I think the best part about midstream overall, which is going to surprise no one, is because of the stability, these are true cash yield vehicles. This is an area of needed growth. We have an, a lot of gas and LNG coming out of America. Shale is still, believe it or not, <laughs> a growing kind of thing. Um, and between our refineries exporting, there's a whole bunch of need for a quote-unquote midstream in the United States and Canada. And so from a sort of, is there a future type perspective? Yes, there is for midstream for the same reasons that America and Canada should remain dominant energy providers. I'm just going to take the optimistic view that at some point, the American people support leaders who support American and Canadian energy. We're just going to have to be optimistic about that because it makes too much sense. It does not make sense to try and keep American and Canadian energy in the ground. How does that make any sense to anyone? Uh, but we're going to save that speech for another video. And so I think there's a pretty bright outlook in terms of future demand for midstream. I think it's in a question of getting the capital structure right and figuring out if you're one of these other subsectors, does it make sense or doesn't it? I don't know the answer to that. It might for some. The last area I want to talk about is something that I really haven't covered at Super Spike, and that's the gassy E&Ps. Um, you know, towards the end of my Goldman coverage, I was not spending a lot of time on gas E&Ps. And, and it's probably just gotten away from me a little bit, but I'm intrigued by the emergence of at least a couple now, post some MA, sizable companies. Uh, I am encouraged by the fact that after, very, so they're the thick yellow line, clearly. Uh, and you can see a, a challenging return on capital history. I do think there's some mark to market accounting going on here that I probably need to clean up for that I haven't yet. And again, perhaps for another video or explanation. And I think even if you clean up for that mark-to-market accounting, a pretty choppy at best uh, history, at least on this return on capital metric. I'm sorry, the other issue with the gas EMPs is you kind of have companies coming in and out as sort of gas EMPs. Some went to oil and they came back and do you include them or not? There's probably some cleanup that needs to happen. But I also think this picture from a big picture standpoint is probably telling the story that it's been a challenging area that is now doing much better. Um, so between this consolidation where you're seeing some bigger companies emerge, between the clear growth in US LNG, which is going to have to be fueled by something, that's US natural gas. Um, I suspect a better outlook does not mean you have to bet on a higher Henry Hub. I think if you're betting on a higher Henry Hub, um, I, th I think that's probably always been the challenge uh, throughout my career. People are always bullish Henry Hub gas prices that I'm not, you know, except for brief period of times, I don't think that's been right. But if you're a larger gas EMP, how do you take advantage of the future that is out there? We know there's 7 billion people in the rest of Earth who are going to need energy and American energy, and American gas is going to be a huge part of that. Uh, I think to be a major player in LNG, that takes a really big balance sheet. In round numbers, I'm going to say $100 billion plus type balance sheet to have the import terminals, to have the export facilities, to invest to be able to trade, to do all these, to have the ships, to do all these things requires generally a big company. Maybe it's an exception to that, but generally requires being a big company. But they're building to something. And I don't know what they're building to, but I do find this area to be one of the more intriguing areas. And I think the one with perhaps some of the most interesting strategic questions, refiners too, but but also gas EMPs, which is how do you think about how you want to participate in the future of energy? So this is a sector that I need to spend more time on, frankly. I do need to, I think, clean up these numbers a little bit, or at least just really gain confidence in what that historic profitability is. And then therefore, how do we think about the future going forward? So I'd like to end this video on a, on a personal note. So um, it is 
NFL football playoff season. And I'm probably going to lose some subscribers on this admission, but I, I grew up in New Jersey, but I actually grew up a Cowboys fan. And I'll, I'll save how I became a Cowboys fan. And I'm, I'm in my 50s, so America's team and all. Uh, you can you can like them anywhere. Uh, you know, this loss to Green Bay is going to go down as really one of the most crushing defeats as a Cowboy fan we've ever faced. But I have to say, I have bounced back from it uh, more easily than I did when I was younger. So if I'm going through sort of agonizing Cowboy defeats, I think the number one still has to be the Dwight Clark, the catch. And I, I forgotten the exact year, 87, something like that. I, I was still in middle school. I mean, I'm sorry, this was actually 81. This is early 80s. So I was definitely in middle school when that happened. And I don't think people quite remember after Dwight Clark made that catch from Joe Montana to take the lead. Uh, I want to say Danny White was the quarterback and he had that bomb too. If it was not Drew Pearson, it was the Cowboys other receiver. I'm getting old. I'm forgetting everyone's names where he caught it on the 50 yard line. It was a 30 yard pass play and his jersey was untucked. And the the San Francisco safety tackled him, grabbing onto his jersey. If he tucked in his jersey, they might have had the game tying touchdown. And, and I could, of course, be completely confusing horrible cowboy losses and near misses. But that's my memory of that game. And when you're in middle school and your team loses, it is crushing. Um, probably a sign I had a pretty good upbringing. Thank you to my parents who do watch most of these videos. That one of my worst moments is uh, a cowboy's loss. Good upbringing. I'm very lucky. Um, the, the, the more recent and then we had that nice run, the 1990s teams in particular, even the, the rest of the 70s and 80s, not, not too bad. Th then we've had the Des Bryant um, non-catch catch that cost us a game. But I don't think the Cowboys were a Super Bowl team that year. The loss a few years later where the Cowboys, I think, had the number one seed and Aaron Rodgers drives down and I want to say it was Mason Crosby kicked the field goal to win it. That was one of those sort of devastating last second losses that you know, was Dak and Jason Garrett really going to win a Super Bowl? Eh, maybe, but, you know, that was tough. To lose this game in the first quarter is ridiculous. And I think, you know, it's easy to blame Dak Prescott. It's not his fault. The defense was awful. Um, as a fan, you're going to blame Mike McCarthy, I guess. You know, I wasn't excited when they made him a coach. I feel like my non-excitement was proven true. But I think sort of like with companies, you do have to start at the top. I mean, at the end of the day, this is Jerry Jones and therefore, and also Stephen Jones's franchise. Um, you know, and so when you look at the disappointment post the firing, totally ridiculous of Jimmy Johnson, it's it starts with it starts with the top. And I think unfortunately, unlike publicly traded companies, there's nothing we can do about it. So uh I, I probably need to be introspective of why I am still a Cowboys fan, so long as our ownership is still its ownership. Uh, but that's a hard thing to change. And so We'll have to figure that out. So I, I, I would normally want to end these things on a more optimistic note, but uh, it's it's as brutal of a Cowboys loss as I, I think you can imagine to be totally embarrassed in the first quarter. So with that, uh, we'll, we'll sign off here. Thank you.